only 25 lessons. We're almost through chapter 8 here. And uh, Paul is in the process of writing some of the more beautiful verses of the letter as he explains our place in the plan of God. He's told us that we're co-heirs with Messiah, that we are sons of God, telling us of the glory that awaits us is just the first fruits of what we've experienced. The gifts are just the first fruits for what God really has in store for us. And last week he told us our salvation, uh, of our, that our salvation was all in the plan of God. He said this in verse 29 in cha- chapter 8, For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these who he called, he also justified. And these he justified, he also glorified. And so he tells us that he foreknew. And because he foreknew that he predestined that we be conformed to the image of his son. That we were called, we were justified, we were glorified. And all of this was the work of God. And then he says in verse 31, he says... What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? And so he says, well, what shall we say of these things? What things? Yes. Well, the things we just read. The fact that God foreknew us, that he predestined that we become like his son, that he called us, justified us, and glorified us, all, and, and that these are all the works of our God, and that he works out all things for our good. He's getting ready. After all these first eight chapters of telling us our place in the Messiah and what it means to be in Messiah, to bring it all home, and he's about to tell us the true purpose of the letter. And he's doing that by ending this whole discourse with our surety, the surety of our place in Messiah, that God foreknew us. He knew all of our mistakes. He foreknew that we would turn toward him and he predestined us to be conformed into the image of his son. And notice that all of these things that he said about us are in the past tense. We've been called. We've been justified. We've been glorified. It's a done deal. I'm not a proponent of once saved, always saved doctrine, as it's preached by most. But you have to understand that once you're truly saved, once you're truly filled with the Spirit of God, once you begin to hear the voice of God, then it is a done deal. And that's what Paul is saying here. And don't confuse what I'm saying to think that I'm saying just because someone said the sinner's prayer once, that he has eternal security. That's not what he's saying. That's not what I'm saying here. But the point is, is God, once you're saved, is not willing to let you out of his hands. Let me also say that having eternal security doesn't mean that we need to be care, have a carefree attitude as to how we live. We know that we can't because one of those five verbs, what did it say? That God predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. We can't have a carefree attitude because we're predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son and in His Son there is no sin. 
There's nothing carefree about being conformed to the image of Yeshua. It is the work of God, and it's a lot of effort on your part, too. Yeshua, it is the work of God, like I say, but it's a lot of effort on our part, too. So within those five verbs, which are, which as we said last week, are dependent on one another. If you remove one of them, the others don't stand. There's an expectation of a life change on your part. Now, I wanted to go through these things this way because that's the way it's always taught. What these things mean to us on a personal level, good and bad. Good because we need to know that we have security in Messiah, that we're being transformed, but we also need to know this. Paul isn't writing to us. He's writing to the Romans. And he has a specific purpose in mind as he writes this letter. You need to understand that while Paul is explaining our place in Messiah, he's really speaking to the main audience of his letter, which are believing non-Jews of Rome. And he's setting them up now for the purpose of his letter. Can you imagine these Romans sitting in their pews listening to Paul's letter, relaxing in their seats, feeling all warm and cuddly, secure, just as you're feeling warm, cuddly, and secure, right? After reading this, right? Well, in the next few chapters, let me tell you, the other shoe's going to drop. But first, before we get there, we got a little more cuddly and warm to do with. Verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Yeshua the Messiah is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and also intercedes for us. He says, who will bring a single charge against God's elect? And what I want you to remember is make sure now what he says. He's talking about God's elect as we continue. And he says, who is the one who condemns? Bringing us back full circle back to what? Chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Therefore there is no condemnation to them who are in Messiah, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. There's no condemnation in Messiah. So who is it that condemns? Who is it that can bring a charge? Well, it's not the adversary of God. We covered that. But that's not what Paul's getting at here. What he's getting at is this. It certainly isn't you that can bring a charge. It's not me that can bring a charge. It's not these non-Jews in Rome who can bring a charge. Nobody can bring a charge. And notice something else. He does not say those who are in Messiah, but he says the elect. God's elect. The one who brings the charge against those who are the elect. Who is the one that brings the charge against those who are elect? No one. No one can. Only Messiah, and he won't do it because he died for you. He was raised from the dead to be a guide for you, to intercede for you on your behalf so that the elect might be in him. Will he discipline us? Well, yes, he will. And will he keep on disciplining until we repent and conform to him who he predestined us to conform to? Yes, he will. But he will not condemn the elect. And so he continues in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Messiah? 
Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. So Paul asks the rhetorical here. He says, who will separate us from the love of Messiah? No one. Because no one can. Will tribulation or anything else separate the elect from the love of Messiah? No one can. However, will God's people suffer? Will they be disciplined? Will life's challenges test their faith? He answers that question with a quote from Psalm 44. Let's read a little bit more of it and we'll get a better understanding of what he means. Psalm 44 verse 20 says, If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find out? For he knows the secrets of the heart, but for your sake we are killed all day long. We considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul has sunk down to the dust, our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up, be our help, redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. And so he answers, yes, you may suffer in this life. You may be like sheep before the slaughter, but you will not be removed from God's eternal hand. Because Messiah paid the price and will not let you out of his hand because of the sake, for the sake of his loving kindness. Can you feel the warmth? Huh? Can you feel the warmth? Get ready because the other shoe's about ready to drop. Not quite yet though. He says this in verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything created or any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. The conclusion of the matter is nothing can separate God's elect from the hand of God except God himself. He's not willing to lose even one of those Yeshua died for. So who can do bring a charge? Who can condemn God's elect? No one. Not the adversary. Not me. Not you. And certainly not those non-Jews in Rome. Now the next question has to be, who are the elect? And I ask that because in the whole first eight of the chapters, while speaking of those who are in Messiah, and what it means to be in Messiah, he has not used the term elect yet. This is the first time, and there's a reason for it. By the elect, does he mean those who are in Messiah? Well, yes, he does. Because the answer to, I'm going to tell you something, the answer to who the elect is, is the other shoe dropping to the ground. You see, in his, in, in his other letters, we're going to find out who the elect is. Sometimes, we find that it's translated chosen in some Bibles, Those who are in Messiah. Listen to Colossians 3, verse 12 and 13. It says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put 
on a heart of compassion, kindness, and humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, you should also forgive. And so the word chosen here is the same Greek word for elect, just translated different. A clear use of the word, and who does it describe? Non-Jewish believers in Colossae. Let's go to a second Timothy now, and we're going to see the word used to describe another group of people who had been who would also be within that same Roman synagogue. It says this in Second Timothy chapter two ten, chapter two verse ten. Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain salvation, which is in Messiah Yeshua with eternal glory. So who is it this time who is the elect? It's the Jewish people who have not found Messiah yet. Remember our groups within the synagogue he's writing to in Rome? We have Jews, proselytes, and God-fearers who believe in Messiah Yeshua, who have accepted Messiah Yeshua. And then we have Jews, proselytes, and God-fearers who don't believe Yeshua is the Messiah. They're all there worshiping together. Well, if we look to his writings, we find that Paul uses the term elect for both groups. Let's look at his use of another word, which is close, very close. It's actually the word election. It's how it's translated in our Bibles. Verse, chapter 11, verse 28. From the standpoint of God's choice or election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Here again, who's it speak of when he says the election, the elect of God? It's the Jewish people. I want you to see that at the end of this chapter, he's preparing to enlighten these non-Jewish believers as to the Jewish people's election and God's love for them. They too are in the hands of God. They too are those he's not willing to. To let out of his hand. Even though they don't know Yeshua the Messiah as of yet. He's not willing that they be lost. And they are too his elect. He told us something about ourselves earlier in the chapter 8. I want to look. He told us. Remember I told him one of the warm cuddly things. He told us that we are the sons of God. That we have been adopted. And we're now the sons of God. I'm going to read it again. Verse 14. For all who are being led of the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading again to fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Messiah, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. Whoa, I feel good. right? Wonderful, heartwarming, faith-building passage intended to give us faith and confidence in what God has done for us, right? Well, I want to read chapter 9 and see what he says of the Jewish people. Chapter 9, verse 3. For I wish that I myself were accursed and separated from Messiah for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are the Israelites. For to them belongs the adoption of sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The Jewish people are also called the adopted sons. 
And notice it says they received glory. They've received the promises. What promises have they received? Well, the promises that we spoke of a few weeks ago, those given to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob of the world to come. And not just that, but now remember our five verbs. Remember what our five verbs were? He foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. All in the past tense, a done deal for we who are in Messiah. Well, he just told us that Israel, his kinsmen, also received the adoption of sons in the glory. And now let's go to Romans 11, verse 2, and it says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He foreknew Israel. He called Israel as well. And the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. We just read it. He's led these non-Jews down the garden path. And now he's about to tell them why. Listen, Israel, all those of my own race are God's elect as well. They were foreknown by God as well. They received the adoption as sons as well. They received the glory as well. These are the things he's going to get at in the next few chapters. And so why do you suppose he's going to get at this thing? Why do you suppose he's going to spend three chapters on this? Why do you suppose he let him down this garden path, sniffing all the flowers and feeling warm and cuddly? Well, when we get to that, that's the purpose of the letter. He obviously thinks that Gentile followers of the Messiah need a course correction in regard to their treatment of the Jewish people who have not yet come to know Messiah yet. And maybe treatment might be too strong a word. Perhaps we should just say their lack of concern for the Jewish people, their lack of respect for the Jewish people who haven't come to know Messiah yet. Because remember, this synagogue is filled with those who have come to faith in Messiah and those who have not. And so instead of showing the love of Messiah to the Jewish people who have not yet come to faith, they're feeling a bit superior. And if we look back in history, we can see that that attitude ultimately prevailed in Rome. Rome and the Roman church was a center of a wave of anti-Semitism. And I want to move ahead. I want to read a few things just moving ahead about 80 years to about 140 Common Era. We have this fellow... His name is Justin Martyr, and he's one of the most highly respected and earliest of the church fathers, so much so that this is what the Catholic Encyclopedia says about this guy, Justin. It says this of him. The role of St. Justin may be summed up in one word. It is that of a witness. We behold him, one of the highest and purest pagan souls of his time in contact with Christianity compelled to accept its irrefutable truth, its moral, pure moral teaching, and to admire its superhuman constancy. He is also a witness of the second century church, which he describes for us in its faith, its life, its worship, at a time when Christianity yet lacked the firm organization that it was soon to develop but the larger outlines of those of whose constitution and dark doctrine are already luminously drawn by Justin. Finally, Justin was a witness for Messiah unto death. That's what's said about this guy. 
So this is what has been taught about Justin Martyr by the church for centuries. And notice that it says that he is a witness of the second century church, teaching its constitution and doctrine, its teachings. And so when we read his writings, we're going to read the direction of the Roman church went after reading Paul's letter, after passing, after the passing of the disciples, they're going on to be with Yeshua. Remember the last disciple John lived to about 100 common year by tradition. Now Justin is said to have converted from paganism in 130 and so we're going to go about 40 years to 140 and we're going to see what he wrote. Because this is going to give us an idea what the doctrine of the church was. We just read it. The custom of circumcising the flesh handed down from Abraham was given to you as a distinguishing mark to set you off from the other nations and from us Christians. The purpose of this was that you and only you might suffer the afflictions that are now justly yours. That only your land be desolate and your cities be ruined by fire. That the fruits of your land be eaten by strangers before your very eyes. That none of you want, not one of you be permitted to enter your city of Jerusalem. Your circumcision of the flesh is only a mark by which you certainly be distinguished from other men. As I stated before, it as I stated before, it was by reason of your sins and the sins of your fathers that among other precepts, God imposed upon you the observance of the Sabbath as a mark. Notice he associates the destruction of the Jerusalem and the banishment of the Jewish people off the land of Israel as being punishment for the Jews. So we know this is being written sometime after 135 common era and the Bar Kokhba rebellion. But notice he separates the Christians from the Jews. If this is the doctrine and he's actually upholding the second century church church doctrine and teaching, as that article said about him, that separation has taken place. He's saying that the Jewish people are no longer the chosen people, but now it is the church who's the chosen people. And so here already we have the beginning of replacement theology in 135, 140 common era. And notice also we have a move away from the Sabbath to the pagan first day of worship. Let's read on. Let's read a little bit more about some more of the words of this fellow. And therefore, all this has happened to you rightly and well. For you slew the just one and his prophets before him. And now you reject as far as in you lies dishonor those who set their hope on him and God Almighty and maker of the universe who sent him, cursing in your synagogues them that believe in Messiah. For you have no authority to raise your own hands against us because of them who are now supreme. Now I wanted to read you this because it shows the direction that the Church of Rome went after the Bacchopa Rebellion and probably before. As this article says, this is second century church teaching. Now think for a moment. If this was the attitude of Rome at this time, And they have reduced the Jewish people who have not come to faith in Messiah to those who are accursed of God and that they now teach that they are the ones who are the chosen of God. Do you think we might be seeing the seeds of this Roman church in Paul's day? You think we might be seeing the first seeds of it? And that's what maybe Paul is addressing? 
Well, I can tell you this. Seeds of change, good or bad, happen in the church very slowly. And a good example of that is uh, the Pentecostal movement. We find that it's a mainstream movement today. It has millions of members in many offshoot denominations now. It's divided many times, many different denominations. But I want you to know it didn't start that way. It started, its start was well over a hundred years ago, around 1900, with the Azusa Street Revival. And then it grew very slowly over that hundred of years. The changes of doctrine happened slowly, gradually, over a hundred years. We can see it in our Messianic movement. It started in 1967, around 1960s, in the Midwest, in one single congregation, and now 50 years later, it's finally moving toward mainstream. Right? Well, if we look at mainstream attitudes of the church in 140 Common Era, it's not hard to conceive that the seeds of this attitude had begun 80 years prior. With people thinking of themselves as superior to the Jewish people. Because of their faith in Messiah Yeshua. Well, I'm going to tell you something. We're going to examine the text. We're going to examine this letter over the next few weeks to see if this is true. And at the end of it, I think all will agree. Now, ask yourself, why would I think that? Well, the main audience of this letter is, of course, Gentile followers. And we can see this in the beginning, the end, and the middle of the letter. Let's start with the beginning. 113. It says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may attain some fruit from among you even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation to the Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And so he's telling us, who's he writing to? The Gentiles, former Greeks, former barbarians and the like. Now if we move to the middle of the letter, he says this in chapter 11. But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. So in the middle letter, he tells us again, who's he talking to? Gentiles in Rome. We go to the end of the letter, chapter 15, verse 15. It says, but I have written you very boldly, to you on some points so to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of the Messiah Yeshua to the Gentiles ministering as a priest of of the gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And so he's writing to the Gentiles. They're his main audience. And we can gather from his statement here that this is what? It's a letter of correction. And he tells us the reason for the correction. So that his offering may be acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So the next thing we need to ask ourselves, what's he trying to correct? Right? Well, if we move again to the middle of the letter, we're going to find out what he's trying to correct. Verse 17 of chapter 11, he says, But if some of the branches, speaking of Israel, were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and become a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember, 
that it is not you who supports the root, but the root who supports you. You will say them branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. So if the main audience is the non-Jew, and he says in speaking of his Jewish brethren in the community, that they are the natural branches, and the non-Jews are grafted in, and he says, don't be arrogant, don't be conceited, or you too may be broken off. What do you suppose the problem is here? Pretty simple, isn't it? It's not hard to see because he's going to repeat himself in the next chapter. Chapter 12, he says in verse 3. For through grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think more highly of himself than he ought to think. You see, the problem in Rome, it would seem, is that these Gentile believers to whom the letter is being written to are on a path of alienating Jewish non-believers through their arrogance. And finally, if we go to chapter 16, the very last chapter, we're going to find Paul summarizing the purpose of his letter. And if we go to the summary and we look at it carefully, we can find why the letter is being written. And it'll give us some new insight as we go through these chapters. It says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissension and hindrances. Contrary to the teaching which you have learned, turn away from them, for such men are slaves not of the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, but of their own appetites. By their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. And so the summary is that there are those who are causing division and causing people to stumble. You see, the word for hindrance there is the Greek word skandalon. And it means to stumble. I put the definition up here for you. Occasion to fall, stumbling, offense, stumbling block. There are those Gentiles who are putting a stumbling block in the way of others causing them to fall. They're causing an offense within the synagogue of Rome. And what is the offense? What's causing these people to stumble? Well, we just read one of the things. They think more highly of themselves than they ought. Pride, arrogance on the part of these Gentiles. What are some of the areas, other areas that are causing division and stumbling? Well, chapter 14 is going to speak of some of those areas. Food, days of worship are some of those areas. If we go to chapter 13, it speaks of another. I want to look at this one today. We're going to look at all of the others maybe next week. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Now, what's the common interpretation of this here? The common interpretation is that Paul is referring to the civil rulers in Rome, that you need to obey them, right? And that's good advice. I mean, obey the laws of the land as long as they don't go against the laws of God lest they put you in jail. However, if they ask you to transgress God's law, it's better to go to jail. However, I want you to notice that God it says that God himself established this authority. And they are not to be feared for their good, but for the evil 
That doesn't sound like he's talking about the rulers of Rome to me, does it? You see, there's another ruler that these non-Jews had to contend with. And that's the ruler he's referring to. And who is the ruler he's referring to? The synagogue ruler. It would appear that they are rebelling against the synagogue authority, which are more than likely, again, Jewish men who aren't believers. Each synagogue had a synagogue ruler and a cantor, and they were responsible for the discipline and the fundraising in the community. Hence, we read a little farther. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Again, it would be hard for me to even imagine that these Roman citizens are not paying their Roman taxes. Because at that time, it would be a real problem for them. If you didn't pay your taxes in Rome and they caught you, they didn't just slap your hand and put you on a payment plan. If you didn't pay your taxes in Rome, you wouldn't even be hearing this letter read. So it wouldn't be a problem for you. So it's hard for me to conceive that this would be a problem that Paul would need to address. No, what he's referring to here is they're not paying the temple tax or some of the fees that the synagogue rulers would have imposed for some project, upkeep, salary. If you look at the synagogue history, you're going to find they don't rely on offerings. They imposed fees. If we put this all together, we're going to find that this letter is being written because some are thinking much more highly of themselves than they ought, and they're causing trouble in the community in Rome. And this is the correction that the letter is trying to accomplish. And he'll begin this discourse in chapter 9, and throughout chapter 11, he's going to tell them of the love that God has for his people Israel, the Jewish people, his brothers in the flesh. And then in 14 through 16, he's going to give them the correction that they need. And we're going to pick up this uh, next week. And we're going to look at this word stumbling. We're going to look at some of these other things to show that this is the problem. Okay?